0: Welcome on in, everybody, to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron,
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Coming up, if the milk in your fridge had yesterday's date on it, did you still drink it this morning? Or did you simply throw it away? We're talking about the expiration dates on our food and how consumer confusion leads to billions of dollars of food wasted every single year. And we want to hear from you. Call us, 888-477-477. Nine four nine nine, or email studio2 at whyy.org. I have a strong stomach, so I probably would have drank it. Let letting you know.
0: <laughs> Did you? Um,
1: I didn't. You? I, ha- I have in the past. Oh, you have in
0: the past. I have in the past. Yeah. The past. Uh, Speaking of the past, last couple days we've been bringing you installments of WHYY's Schooled Podcast, and today is the third and final part. Today we're taking you across the river to New Jersey, which long ago had its own school funding lawsuit. So what happened afterward, and is that what awaits Pennsylvania in the coming years?
1: But Before we go there, let us walk through some of the latest headlines this morning. Avi, you're up first. I'm up first.
0: Yeah, And we're staying on the school's topic here. Mm-hmm. Uh, tonight, or later today, the Philly School Board is going to decide whether to begin the process of closing a charter school in the Bridesburg section of Northeast Philadelphia. This school is called Franklin Town Charter School. I used to cover the schools here in Philly, mm-hmm. and this is not that uncommon that the school district wants to try to shut down a charter school, but almost always it's because the school is struggling academically. Mm-hmm. That is not the case here. Yeah. So a a whistleblower who worked for this school came to the Inquirer earlier this year and said the head of the school was manipulating the lottery system for getting into the school, basically trying to weed out kids from certain zip codes and the siblings of children who were struggling behaviorally or academically. The excluded zip codes, as the allegation goes, had more black students than white students. The included zip codes had disproportionately more white students. Um, and so the way this is supposed to work in the charter school world mm-hmm. is that if you apply, Cherry, and I apply, we have an equal chance of getting in. We're just ping pong balls and a big drum. No matter the zip code. No matter the zip yeah. code, as long as you're the right age. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is basically an allegation substantiated, it seems, by some investigation from the school district of straight up fraud in the admissions process. Yeah. Uh, and this is a big deal because it charter is. school opponents and skeptics have long accused these schools sometimes with not yeah, so yeah. much evidence of trying to weed out students they don't want to serve and if this is indeed true and it leads to the school being closed eventually um it, it's a big moment
1: yeah and this is a you know education is a hot topic i mean we just had that school funding case um and the lottery process is a point of angst for a lot of parents who are trying to get into these charters, um, and it feels so opaque, and parents are told repeatedly, trust the process, it's fair, but these allegations that the five majority black zip codes in West and Southwest Philadelphia had zero students in the school, and they checked it for several years, and none of them were in the school, it it, it definitely
0: causes concern. But you make a great point, right, because by its nature, the lottery process has to happen behind a veil. And so you have to trust the people behind the veil are doing it properly.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, there's this underlying you know issue with racism in schools, you know, inequities in education, and it just picks at this scab of this unhealed wound of racism and redlining That's in the great city way of to Philadelphia. So it picks so at a scab.: It picks think, at a scab, it and, and it, a scab. it never gets a chance to heal. And so we'll see what happens at the hearing uh, later today. Um, I won't say this is a scab. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely yeah. an issue in neighborhoods. Yeah, maybe just like
0: a little slight little it's bruise, a little bruise or
1: something. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I you live in South Philly. I've mm-hmm. li- I lived in South Philly for eight years. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen chairs, orange cones, trash cans, even a vacuum cleaner. Once I saw that out there. All of these are items that are used in Philadelphia to secure a parking spot. The culture is called savesies. And it might end soon, at least in parts of the city. Let me (laughs) explain. No,
0: (laughs) go ahead. Let me explain. explain.
1: Philadelphia Police, 15th District, mostly in Northeast Philly, they're stepping up and they are removing these parking cones and other items. Um, In this process, over the weekend, they recovered 102 cones. Um, Allegedly, they stopped picking up these cones because they ran out of space. Like in the back of the pickup truck? In the back of the van, okay? The The back of the van, okay? (laughs) And let me just tell you, you know, they had gotten a lot of complaints from neighbors saying there was no parking, um, and they're doing this as a form of de-escalating violence and preventing gun violence because, you know, you're afraid to park in a space because someone could key your car. If they key your car, you're going to get mad. Right. And next so you, you know, move the
0: cone that they use to save the parking space and then they exactly, retaliate against you.
1: Exactly. And so people are afraid of the retaliation. Mm-hmm. And the city has repeatedly said that savesies are strictly prohibited. But this is a historical thing. It happens in South Philly. I've done it. Okay, mm, especially mm, during mm, snowstorms.
0: Sweat equity. <laughs> tisk, tisk. That's what
1: equity allows you. I thought the right to like hold no. your space, but it's not true. But they're only no. picking up cones. I'll just point that out. You don't have. They're not picking up other items like vacuum cleaners. So that,
0: there you go. I'm I'm a <laughs> I, I'm an opponent of savesies. You are talking about a breakdown of the order of society. <laughs> People, when you leave your parking space, anyone can park in it. That's the way the system. Perpetuates itself; no, I, otherwise, it's total parking chaos. Well, you can put folding chair. People, I, they're not going to stop. But they're saying, "Look, if you uh, put it out there, the don't police care it can pick it don't up. Don't save your parking spot. You've been don't warned. Do it. Don't You've been do warned. It. Don't do it." Um, so, by the way, speaking of chaos, Pennsylvania politics. Uh, there's been a bumper crop of stories this week, little bubblings mm. about Dave McCormick, um, who mm-hmm. seems very likely to run for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania in 2024 against. Incumbent Bob Casey. McCormick is a Republican. He would have to win the primary first. You're thinking, okay, that name sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Dave McCormick, yeah, because he just ran for U.S. Senate last year in the Republican primary. He didn't win. Oz Um, won. Oz won the primary and then lost to Fetterman. uh, But he got incredibly close to winning the primary. And I think some of the wind in his sails comes from the fact that he got very close to winning the primary without securing the endorsement of one Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So the idea being that maybe he gets that endorsement in 2024 and can uh, take on Casey, a long-term incumbent.
1: But But with McCormick, like with Oz, there are some questions about how Pennsylvania is he? You know, people have been sort of raising issues because he's been, uh, you know, he did sell his home, a $6.5 million home in Connecticut a very wealthy uh, area of Connecticut, and he since uh, rents a $16 million mansion in Westport, Connecticut. And let me tell you about this mansion, okay? It overlooks Long Island Sound. Six bedrooms, nine bathrooms. Hmm. Nine bathrooms. Okay, I would love it. Two-acre estate. has a 1,500-bottle wine cellar. And so in my mind, I'm I'm thinking, I know it won't be Snooky because she's from the Jersey Shore. You remember those Snooky ads? No, what are you talking about? Uh, yeah, they were saying w- welcoming Oz back to Jersey. Oh, Don't worry oh, about oh, Jersey oh, loves oh, you. Right, right. That, that was a campaign that Fetterman ran um, right, questioning right, right, Oz's right. loyalty to Pennsylvania. There could be similar um, you know, attacks against McCormick, but he is from Pennsylvania. Yeah, so
0: I think it's different, right? And it, it is. Maybe it the is. attack will still work and they're clearly Democrats are already trying to discredit him along this line. However... You mentioned it, but the, there's more there. He is truly from, he Pennsylvania. Is from Pennsylvania. He grew up in Pennsylvania. His dad was, in fact, the president of Bloomsburg University at one point. One of the so he has a lot are. of ties. He has a lot of ties here. He's lived in Connecticut for a while, but his family is from Pennsylvania. So we'll see. We'll see. You and know, you got
1: to beat Casey, who is will be right. going for his fourth and, term. Right. And he's an, he's an incumbent and well known. And he's sort of the
0: ultimate Pennsylvanian. His dad was a yeah. longtime politician mm-hmm. here. So maybe there is enough of a d- discrepancy. One more story, One Cherry, more story. The me. Art
1: Museum Steps. We keep talking about it. We talked about MIA. Well, they are plastered right now with an advertisement for an upcoming DC comic superhero movie. It's called Blue Beetle. You probably never heard of it. I was today years old when I heard about it. But... The film is about a beetle from from another planet that comes to Earth and I don't uses, care what the film's about. Yeah, but anyway, the beetle has nothing <laughs> to do to the controversy. with Beverly. It's not the set, the filming, or the plot, and there's this giant ad on the art museum steps. The city owns the steps. They say it's a good opportunity for revenue. They got about 28 grand for this, and it'll be gone on Sunday, but using the art museum steps as an ad. Thoughts?
0: First thought was, it's a little icky. Second thought was, who the bleep is the Blue Beetle? There's Ant-Man already. There's the Green Hornet. I think at some point they should like just—they should What's just, just make—they should make up a character that doesn't even exist and see if they can make a movie about it, and people won't even notice. The Crimson Cockroach. Just pretend that it exists. Cockroaches. There I'm running. There are so many of these characters now. <laughs> Crimson one at that. Well, right. I, you we'll know, let it go. I get grumpy about all these superhero movies. I Also get grumpy sometimes about sell-by dates. We're going to talk about them next on Studio Two. Stick with us.
2: Supporting WHYY, the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Funded by the Knight Foundation, the Chamber announces its Leading the Way, Cell and Gene Therapy in Greater Philadelphia report. More at chmbr.biz backslash cgtphl.
0: This is Studio 2. I am Avi. Please, God, stop making superhero (laughs) movies. Wolfman Errand,
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. If you take a look at some of the foods in your kitchen, yogurt, eggs, bread, canned goods, you'll see different labels. Some say sell by, others use by, others freeze by, or sometimes just a date stamped
0: on its own. And when you see that date, no matter what the rest (laughs) of the label says, you're probably inclined to throw the item away just to be safe. And that right there leads to billions of dollars in household food waste every single year. It also puts a lot of the onus on you, the consumer, to decide what's safe and what isn't.
1: So today we're learning why food label standards are so disorganized and how to take matters into our own hands at home. Joining us now is Emily Broadleave, professor and director of Harvard Law School's Food Law and Policy Clinic. Emily, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you so much. And you, friends, can join the conversation by calling 888-477-9499. Do you toss based on the date, or do you trust the old-fashioned smell test? Again, that number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org.
0: So welcome in, Emily. And I think the most surprising thing in doing my research on this topic is that what I assumed about how these dates came into existence was totally wrong? So give us the history. When did we start seeing these expiration dates on food in America, and why were they developed?
3: Yeah, I uh, I think you're not alone. Most people look at these dates on products and they think, you know, most of the information on a food package is pretty regulated, and these probably are meaningful um so the the history of date labels is really that in um starting in the late 50s but the bulk of states in the in like the 1960s and 70s started passing laws requiring food companies to put a date on their food um but they're generally not actually based on safety and there's not a lot of science that necessarily goes into the setting of the dates themselves
1: and so what are those dates based on? And I know there's a, a number of, if it's not based on science and there's a number of different dates, tell us what they are based on and go through a few of the, the, the labels, used by, sell yeah. by, so many different ones.
3: I know. Well, so on that point, actually, a couple of years ago, Walmart did a study actually looking at what labels were in use in their store. And they found that there were more than 47 different date labels being used on mm. products. So you know, good cocktail party game. Try to come up with forty-seven. I don't think I can even come up with that many. But you know, sell by, best by, enjoy by, born on, you know, born. um best if used by. Yeah, those were that's used on some beer. I can't remember um, which one, but you know, there's all these phrases and a and a, and a date next to them. Um, and so I think the majority of them are um, you know. They're being put there because the companies are told that they need to put something. Um, so at the best side, they're doing a little bit of research around when that product, is it gonna decline in flavor? Um, but I will admit that we've talked to a few smaller food companies that said there was really not a lot of process behind how they put the date on it. But if they're operating in a state that requires dates, they had to put something. So they just kinda get, you know, came up with something on the
0: fly. So, yeah, talk about the regulatory landscape. There's nothing at the federal level, right? So so some states say you have to put something on there. How many states say something and, and what do they say?
3: Yeah. So it's interesting, and I, I've been working on this issue for a while because, as you said earlier, I mean, there's, you know, a big impact on the environment, on the households, on the, you know, household economy of this. And so what I've found now is, first, as you said, there's no um, federal law on this topic in the U.S., um, and that is really uncommon. We now we have been involved in global research and looking at 25 other countries. The U.S. is the only one that has no federal law on date labels. Um, and so, what we found at the state level is, I mean, if the you know if the FDA, if the USDA, if Congress wanted to regulate, they could do this federally. But since they haven't, states have the freedom to step in. And so 40 states require date labels on at least some food product um, and 21 states then restrict either sale or donation of food after the date, even though, as I've explained, the date is usually about like taste and freshness and not really about safety.
0: So if it's Um, not about safety, why have states even done this at all?
3: yeah uh and another interesting thing too i think i've talked also a little bit with some state legislators that have been involved in some of these state laws and i think you know there's a lot of confusion over over even by from the policymaker level they've sort of said well you know there must be a date after which food becomes unsafe so we should have a date on these and i think the real challenge is that Certainly, if you like had, you know, food product in your kitchen and left it there and didn't eat it for months, eventually it would get moldy and gross. But I think the problem is there's really not a lot of science behind knowing when that would happen. Um, And I think the other really important thing to keep in mind and and something that our peer countries have really focused on is that there's really only a small handful of foods where um, they would increase in risk, um, you know, after a certain date in a way that you wouldn't be able to just tell by like smell and looking at it and and saying, wow, this, this doesn't look appetizing anymore.
1: And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Emily Broadleib, professor and director of Harvard Law School's Food Law and Policy Clinic. We're talking about expired food and food waste. If you want to join the conversation, you can call 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.com. Dot org. And I, I want to bring in one of the emails because you said there's only a certain number of foods that you really can't use your own senses to to tell. And my email from Matthew who says, I'm only paranoid about meat stuff. Matthew then goes on to talk about a story about a friend who courageously ate chicken that was not good anymore and he says, this story ends in the bathroom. So <laughs> oh, you can only imagine there um, what happened. I, and, I don't and want and to so, imagine yeah, that what happened. Uh, we'll <laughs> leave it there. But but there are certain concerns. I mean, and, and you mentioned there is not a federal guideline, that the states are confused. and, and But there are things that, that we should be concerned about and that we should hone in on. And I, I do believe, like Matthew there, meat is one of them. What are the, the main things we should be focusing on?
3: Mm-hmm. that's great yeah well poor Matthew's friend um that sounds like a horror story uh so it's interesting you know there's the the what we found and again I should start by you know reiterating I'm a lawyer I'm not a food science expert but in you know you know the years that I've been working on this I've talked to a lot of food safety experts and my my best understanding is that the foods that are the riskiest are foods that are um ready to eat foods that are um And the riskiest substance in those is is listeria, which is a contaminant that, you know, isn't expected to be in food, but can get into foods. Um, And so that is the only pathogen that can really grow while something is being refrigerated. And the issue with ready-to-eat foods is those are foods you're not cooking. So there's no opportunity to kill that pathogen. So the riskiest foods from that perspective are things like deli meat prepared foods like the tuna salad or chicken salad that you get at a deli counter at the you know the grocery store and then also um unpasteurized dairy like raw milk or raw cheeses are Mm. also risky because of that meat is an interesting one i'll just say on that that you know certainly it is something that can go bad more quickly Um, but because we generally cook our meat before we eat it there is a kill step so Um, You know, I think, again, similar to what I said for other foods, you would you it would be clear when it had gone off in a way that um, that that most people would be able to tell. So I would I definitely wouldn't take risks there. But um, but I don't think I think because we're cooking it, it's not one of the ones that food scientists are most concerned about.
0: And that's what's so interesting here. Like, for instance, pasteurized milk. I understand that, yeah, it goes bad in the sense that it smells and tastes bad, but bad milk is not really a risk for the person drinking it from a health perspective. Is that right?
3: Yes. I'm glad you brought milk up because that's one that, that, um, you know, is probably one of the number one products that people waste because of the date. And as you said, I mean, you know, no one wants to drink stinky, spoiled milk, but your senses are really good There, you're going to know, It's going to, you know, not smell or taste good. And if you did take a few sips or drank some milk that had spoiled, it isn't a a risk, you know, it isn't a risk from a food safety perspective. It's just like a, you know, it's just the ick factor. Um, And I I will say in the presence of a food scientist, we did an experiment a few years ago. We have have a video of us doing this experiment where we drank a bunch of milk that was either a few days or multiple days past the date and also milk that had been left out on the counter for a certain number of hours. And um, I think the milk that had left out was really the problem. The milk that was past the date, even, even, you know, almost a week past the date didn't give us any problem. Mm-hmm. And there was no safety risk for any of
1: it. And on the other side, you know, you see the milk, you see the date, you throw it out. There's a, probably a ton of other things you throw out from your refrigerator every time you go to the grocery store. Uh, just to be safe or what are some of the most popular things you think people throw away that there's no need to actually throw away because they're still perfectly safe to eat?
3: Yeah. Well, I should say on that too, the data show um, that, you know, about 90% of Americans report that they throw food away after the date, Um, you know, either always or most of the time because they think it's a safety risk. So I think the data really show consumers are confused Um, milk is the number one that we hear about a lot. I think, um, uh, you know, other refrigerated products. um, The thing that bothers me the most really is people taking things out of your pantry and just tossing them Mm. dates past. So, you know, crackers or cereal or like even pasta. I mean, and it makes sense. We are so far removed from food production now in this country that people are like, they don't have any data points. So they, they just see this date and they think, you know, this is, this is the only safety information I have. And so I think um, my hope is that we can, we can get to a place in the future where it's a lot more clear, which of the food is labeled for a reason that, that you should really be cautious about those ready to eat prepared foods I mentioned. And then we can educate people that this You know, the rest of the food has a label that's really about quality, and you can really just make a decision based on how it it smells and tastes. I
0: want to bring an anonymous listener email here, and I think I understand why this one's anonymous. I've seen seen prepackaged string cheese mozzarella that's been found in the corner, seems to be good after months under the couch. A kid ate it, and then I tried (laughs) it afterwards and couldn't really tell the difference. In taste. I'm not going to yeah. ask you to respond to that, Emily. I think I'm just going to leave that one be.
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to re- give you a response. Okay, go ahead. There was a study where people ate canned foods like 20 years after the date, they oh, had a MG. taste test, and they actually thought the canned food 20 years old tasted better.
0: Wow, interesting.
1: I, I, I <laughs> want to bring
0: in well another seasoned. email here actually from Tim, because you mentioned earlier you're not a food scientist, you're a lawyer. This is an email from Tim. Sell-by dates seem too aggressive for example, whole milk is still excellent, even three days past the date. Wasting food in order to narrow the window where it could spoil, fearing litigation is the motivation, not health. Is that the motivation for these dates? Because I also understand in some levels the the companies want to give you the date where they think it's going to taste Best Buy so that you don't associate their product with, say, stale crackers. So are they motivated by marketing or are they motivated by, by litigation?
1: Or
0: hmm. yeah. the money. <laughs>
3: all three are good you know good hypotheses when I've talked to companies what they've said is is very much the the flavor um is the number one motivator so you know Mm. and it makes a lot of sense like there's a really competitive market out there for food products they want you to eat something and think this is so delicious I love this product I love this brand and they don't want you to eat it and have it be a little funny tasting a little fermented a little stale Um, So what they say is they're really trying to protect their brand, which I think is reasonable as long as it were clear to consumers so that we were armed with the information to make better decisions and not waste food and waste money. Um, You know, the litigation piece, um, I don't think is as much of a risk because I think most businesses acknowledge that for the majority of these foods, they know that there's not a scientific way to tell you when it's going to be unsafe. Um, And then I think on the money, I mean, that comes up all the time. They, again, when I talk to businesses, they say it's more about the protecting their brand, protecting the flavor. Um, But certainly when we throw food away and go back to the store quickly to buy more, um, all the food companies are benefiting to our detriment.
1: And we're talking about expired food. We're talking about food waste with Emily Broad Lee, professor and director of Harvard Law School's Food Law and Policy Clinic. You can call us and comment at 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. Emily, I want to talk about food waste a bit because I don't think I really thought about how much food is being wasted every single day or year uh, in the United States, can you give us a broad understanding of how much food is being unnecessarily wasted and the impact that it's having?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in globally, we're wasting about a third of our food supply every year. In the U.S., we are a high wasting country, and the estimates are that we're wasting between thirty-five and forty percent of all of our food, which is mm. is a disaster. Yeah, yeah. It's you know a lot of food. Um, and as you you think about, um, there's kind of a range of impacts of that. One of the biggest ones is environmental. Uh, we are putting a ton of resources into that food. Um, more than 20% of our of our entire fresh water use in the U.S. goes to water crops that turn into food we then throw away. So we might as well just take 20% of our water and pour it into the landfill. Um, and then food, when we waste that food, it often goes to the landfill where it's a big emitter of methane, and data show that food waste accounts for about 8 to 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So if you think about the scale of everything we're wasting, it's having a huge impact on the environment. Um, and then we talked about already the, the economic impact of that that is on um all aspects of producing and transporting food and then, you know, sending it to landfill and then the, the household loss of money, which is um, between 1500 to $2,000 a year mm. um, estimated for a household of four that they're that they're throwing away just by wasting food unnecessarily.
0: So let's get into solutions. I want to bring in an email here from Valerie, who says, I ignore the dates on everything. I only use them if I have more than one of an item. Then I use the oldest one first and of course do a smell test. Now uh, I trust Valerie. I don't know if I I trust my own nose. Mm -hmm. So, so what is, what's a system that might work? Is it, Hey, let's not put any labels on anything. Is it labels on a small number of products? Is it labels with different wording? What is the standard that you would like to see applied?
3: Well, I love Valerie. Valerie, you could, you know, <laughs> educate your friends, your neighbors, and and more about. Um, so, I think the 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 gold standard that we've really been advocating, and and I should say that um, there's support for this from industry. They've uh, a couple years ago, the two main food um, trade associations were working towards a voluntary standard with one label used on food that is that is. Um, meant to be a quality indicator. So again, if we, we group the foods into these two buckets, the foods where there's a safety risk, those foods would have a label. We've pushed for the words used by, which our data and consumer surveys show um, correlates more with people what people think of as safety. So certain foods you would only have a used by date on, and then the rest of the foods would have best if used by,
4: mm-hmm. which also
3: in consumer surveys showed best, People really, I think, understand that means, you know, it's not a safety risk. It's just we are recommending it's best before that, but you can you can you know, safely eat it after. Um, and I should say that I, uh, one of the the, um, the countries that I really look to for for being a leader on this, the United Kingdom has mm. has mm. done this really successfully. And then they did a great consumer education campaign that was called Look, Smell, Taste, Don't Waste. And what they said was when you see food with the quality label, you can look. If it looks okay, smells okay, and tastes okay, then there's no concern that you're going to get sick from mm. that food. And they've been very successful. They saw um, just on this you know, date label change in education about an 11% decrease in food waste nationally just wow. from that wow. alone.
1: And I got to ask you, speaking of food waste, we have this email from Elizabeth who says, I work for a food bank and we get a lot of donations. Some of them expired. It pains me to watch so much canned goods, cereal, crackers, rice, et cetera, that gets tossed because the date has expired. What would be a good way to talk to the director and the clients about these rules? And we Mm -hmm. have about a minute and a half.
3: Yeah, I think that's, I'm glad you bring it up because we also do a lot of work with those food banks, and and one of the concerns with the way the state laws are now, as I mentioned, is that a lot of states aren't allowing donation of food if past a quality date. I think we can all stand to learn a lot. This shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be sending, um, people are concerned, like, are we sending bad food for donation? No, we all need to recognize that that date is just about kind of quality when something was produced and freshness, um, and that it's safe to donate and safe to eat after that date. Um, I'll say one other thing, which is there's a federal law proposed right now in Congress that they're looking at this issue called the Food Date Labeling Act, which would both standardize the dates in the way I talked about and also make it clear that food can be donated past a quality date because we all know that that food is still safe and nutritious and, and you know, can be helpful to those in need.
0: Something to watch in the halls of Congress. Emily, thank you so much for joining us on Studio Two.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about
0: this. Fascinating conversation. That is Emily Broadlieb, professor and the director of Harvard Law School's Food Law and Policy Clinic. Coming up, we have the final chapter of our special series on the fight for fairer school funding here in Pennsylvania. Stay tuned to Studio Two.
2: Supporting WHYY, the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia. Funded by the Knight Foundation, the Chamber announces its Leading the Way, Cell and Gene Therapy in Greater Philadelphia report. More at chmbr.biz backslash cgtphl. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A.
0: I'm Avi Wolfman-Earant. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Today is our last episode of Schooled.
1: We've been playing the WHY series throughout the week. It examines the battle for a fair school funding formula in Pennsylvania. And this week, host Aubrey Uhas laid out the disparities between very poor and very wealthy schools in Pennsylvania and the funding trial that, as a result, found the Commonwealth school funding formula unconstitutional.
0: Today... We look for solutions. Aubrey visits a New Jersey school district to see the progress they've made after that state's school funding lawsuit. Plus, we hear about the creative solutions teachers and administrators are coming up with while they wait for Pennsylvania to make school funding more equitable.
5: Union City, New Jersey, is right across the river from Manhattan, just a short drive from Times Square. It's a dense city with a lot of recent immigrants, all hoping for their shot at the American dream. And education is a big part of that. The schools here used to have a really bad reputation. For a while, Union City's school district was on the verge of a state takeover because its test scores
4: were so low. Now it's like, oh my God, you're doing such wonderful things. So what happened?
5: New Jersey eventually gave Union City and the other poor urban districts in the state a lot more money. And while the road from bad to good to great was bumpy, Educators and politicians here capitalized on the opportunity, spent the money wisely, and ultimately pulled off a dramatic turnaround.
4: It is very uh, heartwarming and wonderful when you get that response because we came in from the bottom and now we're at the top and keeping it at the top, which is key.
5: That's Sylvia Abato, a longtime educator here who is now the district superintendent. Many students in Union City don't speak English at home a good number of recent immigrants, and a lot of them live in poverty.
4: So you don't expect these children to be as successful, which is a terrible thing to actually say, but because of the school system and the community and the support from the community, they make it. There's a way out for poverty, and it's called education.
5: Sylvia and her twin sister, Adriana Byrne, are deeply committed to Union City schools. They grew up here, and they've spent their entire careers in the district, At this point, more than 40 years each. Like many of their students, they were immigrants and didn't speak any English when they started. How many years has it been, you guys, working in this school district? A lot. (laughs) Back then, the district's school buildings were in disrepair. Sylvia tried to hide it from visitors.
4: And I remember I had holes in my wall. And I put posters, pretty posters. So when they came in, there were no holes in the wall. But those are the things that you did because you didn't have the facilities.
5: It was issues like these that inspired a school funding lawsuit in New Jersey, very similar to the one that Pennsylvania just went through. It was called Abbott versus Burke, and it was filed in the 1980s.
4: A class action suit today charges that the state's public school financing law
5: is unconstitutional. The suit was filed in state... New Jersey's Supreme Court said poor urban districts had to receive the same resources the affluent suburbs had. And to make sure the children in poor urban districts had every opportunity to succeed, the court also forced the state to pay for another thing. Two years of full-day, high-quality preschool.
4: They leave kindergarten classes reading and writing, which wasn't heard of before the preschool education was a mandate in New Jersey.
5: Sylvia's sister Adriana is the director of early education for the district. And the two of them gave us a tour of Union City's Early Education Center to see preschool in action. The building has classrooms with the latest technology, an aquarium in the lobby, and elaborate decorations. And Sylvia is always looking for ways to expand what students are learning.
4: I did a little research and I found that the, the suburbs teach Mandarin in their, in their classrooms. So guess what? In Union City, we have Mandarin classes in two of our schools. So the little ones will leave early childhood speaking Spanish from their home, English from the schools, and Mandarin. How beautiful is that? And why not?
2: Okay. Oh, we need to every day. right? means what? Thank you.
1: Okay? Thank you. And the thank you
5: teacher. After that we pop into another classroom.
4: Good morning, boys and girls. Morning. I have friends here that they would like to see your classroom. And perhaps maybe they would ask you a question or two. Learning is important because you want to know everything about other things.
5: What do you want to learn about?
4: I want to learn about construction.
5: Construct. What about construction?
4: There's like excavators digging up the road.
5: That's a good word, excavator.
4: And we saw a backhoe from Union City crossing a bridge. It was was crazy.
5: It was a bumpy road towards success in New Jersey following its school funding trial. And nobody knows that better than David Shiera. He was the lead attorney for the plaintiffs, 20 schoolchildren, in the case Abbott versus Burke, and went before New Jersey's Supreme Court over and over again to make sure the state paid up.
6: Well, we're up to 23.
5: That's 23 orders from the state Supreme Court over more than three decades. David has a few key takeaways from this lengthy experience.
6: One of the important messages we were always trying to make was that this was not going to be a Robin Hood situation.
5: Meaning the goal wasn't to redistribute resources from wealthy to poor districts. They weren't going to pool all the money from local property taxes and divide it up.
6: This was essentially lifting up the poor districts to what they needed. It wasn't going to be winners and losers.
5: The problem was, and still is, that pumping more state money into the system to help poor districts catch up doesn't address the underlying issue relying on local property taxes to help fund schools.
2: It happens to be that New Jersey
5: compensates
2: for that really hard with very high levels of state investment, and it's still not catching up.
5: Zahava Stadler works for the public policy think tank New America, where she studies equity in school funding. While the money awarded to poor urban school districts brought spending up to the level of suburban schools and in some cases beyond, those increases haven't been sustained. And as a result, the gaps between high and low wealth districts have opened back up. Zahava says Pennsylvania doesn't want to find itself in the same position.
2: The ground level inequalities are too big for states to constantly try to fix them only by pouring state money into the hole. That money's going to run out.
5: We've traditionally relied on local property taxes to fund schools as a country. But Zahava says we don't have to.
2: Ultimately, this is all a policy choice, and it's a policy choice that state legislators are making, or a policy choice that state legislators are declining to make.
5: And some states have decided to do things differently, like Vermont, which has a more Robin Hood-like situation, where wealthier towns pay higher property taxes to subsidize schools in poorer areas, and Kansas, where the state caps how much districts can spend, preventing gaps from forming in the first place. Pennsylvania and New Jersey don't do that. Meanwhile, Zahava says in both states, the wealthier suburbs are moving the goalposts for everyone.
2: They've changed the definition of how much is enough for my education because we're applying for the same state university spots. We're applying for the same jobs on graduation.
5: Overall, New Jersey has some of the highest test scores in the country today, and some credit the Abbott funding for that. But there are still large achievement gaps between children based on race and income. This shows it takes more than just money to move the needle. The lawyer, David Shiera, says the state of Pennsylvania can learn a lot from the success stories of New Jersey public schools. We know how to fix these
6: things, right? So it's not like we don't know the technical. know-how. It's a question of political willingness.
5: David says Pennsylvania's governor, Democrat Josh Shapiro, needs to think outside of the box.
6: He has to step up. He's got to he's got to. Get schooled on this court ruling and what it means and the opportunities that it creates for short-term and long-term change.
5: Governor Shapiro promised a, quote, significant down payment for schools in his first budget address of the year. This court
7: has ordered us to come to the table and come up with a better system, one that passes constitutional muster.
5: But the actual numbers left some people disappointed. So they converged on the Pennsylvania State Capitol in late April to make their demands known.
3: We are here to ask our legislators to fix the funding formula.
5: Students deserve a fully funded, culturally competent
1: educational experience. Because our children are the future. (laughs) Nuestros niños
4: son el futuro de Pennsylvania. And provide us with a constitutional, thorough, and efficient system of funding for public education. We have been waiting too long. Our brown and black children deserve better. Shame on us.
5: Speaking at a recent event, Governor Shapiro was more optimistic. He expects bipartisan support on a solution that gets more money to low income schools.
0: What
7: we now need to do is come up with a formula that drives dollars out where the need is and increases the pot of dollars that go to those schools.
5: Most states use formulas to drive these dollars out to schools based on how many students they enroll. And Pennsylvania has a pretty good formula already. It takes into account the amount of money districts are able to raise locally and the fact that some kids are more expensive to teach. The glaring issue, though, is that the state doesn't really use its formula because when it was passed in 2016, lawmakers decided to only apply it to new dollars. Here's policy analyst Sahaba Stadler again.
2: All the state can do is really put some nice new icing on top of the existing unequal cake. Ultimately, when you, when you bake in all the pre-existing inequality, there's not a lot of room to work.
5: For example, next year, about a quarter of the state's basic education funding is expected to be distributed using the formula. That means the vast majority of funding isn't distributed based on current needs, but instead on decades of politics. Shapiro says his goal is to revise the formula in time for the state's next budget cycle, a year from now. At this point, it isn't clear how realistic that goal even is. Rap Curry is dealing with the issue directly. As the athletic director for the William Penn School District, he was a key witness for the plaintiffs oh, okay. in the
8: trial. Good, good to see you, Hello, Rap Curry. Nice
5: you. Coach Rap has worked at the high school for more than two decades.
8: We can't really play where we've been playing, and so we work really hard to. Uh, uh, I use a concept called "do more with less."
5: Do more with less. It's become Coach Rap's slogan. He even managed to get it printed on the gym's floor.
8: Yeah, I snuck that in here.
5: He had to sneak it in because not everyone likes the language.
8: Oh, you're telling them that they don't have enough. And I'm like, well, that's not the truth. They know when they walk into a really nice gym and a really nice track that there's a difference between where we live and what's there. So we engage the difference.
5: But the problem is some people think the expression can be used as a cop-out for underfunding schools, maintaining the status quo. Let's be clear, though. Coach Rapp does not believe in the status quo. Here's an example. William Penn's football field gets washed out when it rains and doesn't have lights, which you need if you want to host a game.
8: We did something that I think was really good, which is we, we created Friday night lights.
5: Coach Rapp couldn't afford to buy new lights, so we came up with a solution.
8: If you drive by at night and the guys are working out there on, on the highway, we got those same lights, we rented them and we positioned them around the field and we rolled them up as high as we could and we started playing games on Friday nights. Uh, And it took off. It felt alive to you.
5: And the community loved it. Many of them are Penwood alumni.
8: That's what Friday Night Lights
5: is all about, bringing the community back. An added bonus, Penwood's team went on a winning streak.
8: We went from like a team that won no games to being the number one seed in the district.
5: It showed the community what it could be like if they had better facilities. Something the district is now trying to make reality.
7: Well, I'm going to let someone else tell me no. I'm not going to say no to myself.
5: Eric B. Coates is William Penn's superintendent. When he arrived in the district a few years ago, he kept hearing about how terrible the facilities were. So he had each school assessed, ranked the projects based on urgency, and came up with a 10-year plan. Athletic facilities made it to the top of the list.
7: I think it is essential because there are some students without athletics. I don't know if they would get up and come to school.
5: Construction is underway on a brand new $14 million athletic complex that includes a new turf field, synthetic track, baseball and softball fields, locker rooms, concession stands, parking and restrooms, things many suburban school districts already have. For this project and others, the district is lining up the money as they go.
7: And, you know, there were some people who said, how are we going to pay for this? Right. And I'm one of the folks who believe, you know, you don't say no to yourself.
5: You have to try, he says. You can't just say we don't have enough money on hand, so we're not going to do it at all.
7: I think that that is um, borderline insanity. Uh, I believe that you have to develop a plan, set your vision, tell people what you are about, and then work toward trying to achieve it, even if you don't reach it.
5: We're back at Evans Elementary in kindergarten teacher Nicole Miller's classroom the one we visited in the last episode. Hi, Nicole.
4: Hi, how are you? Hello. How are you?
5: <laughs> her students have gone home for the day, but her classroom isn't empty. Her own kids are here. Two out of her three kids went to Evans, which is also where Nicole went. There's her daughter, Nyla. I'm 18 years old, and I am in the 12th grade. Her older son.
0: I'm Marianne Miller, and I'm 15 years old.
5: And her youngest, Makari. He's in the 5th grade. I'm 11. Nicole loves that she gets to share her world with them that wherever they go, people know they're her kids. But she knows if her kids went to school in another district, even one just a few miles away, they would have more opportunities. You know, you want to give your kids the best. So, get emotional. She asks them a question. Would you want
4: it different? Would you rather go somewhere where there's more resources? That's...
1: That would, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. I
4: would definitely not. I wouldn't change a thing. This is my home.
5: Nyla comes over and wraps her arms around her mom. She agrees with her brother. The one thing that we have that I don't believe other districts have is the the source of of love and family. And she echoes what her mom said Even My mom, she went here when she was younger. All of her best friends, she has this group chat called the Sister Circle, and
1: all of them were all alumni of this district. I think that that's something that we produce here. No no amount of money can trade it. I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else.
4: How does it feel to like you can say that? Uh, I'm glad
2: to hear that because that's how I feel. But, you know, and you often wonder, like, am I doing the right thing? Like, I love it here. I want to be here, I want to help be a change agent, but is it at the cost of my kids? Like, do they feel like they're less than because they see other places that have more? And so you
5: try to talk to them at home, like, that's not what that means. You are deserving of it. It's clear that her kids know that. For more than 20 years, Nicole has tried to teach her kindergartners that lesson, too. It's the same thing Coach Rapp is trying to communicate to his players even as he tells them to do more with less. And it's the example that Superintendent Eric B. Coates is trying to set by going big with construction instead of holding back. To be clear, their lesson is that their children and all children in Pennsylvania are deserving. And that underfunded school districts like William Penn deserve more than they've been getting. And they're hopeful that with the court ruling, other people will see that now. And that eventually, the money will come.
1: Well, that wraps up our special
5: broadcast
1: of school. A little applause for that. Yes. Well and, done. And that's it for Studio 2 this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer with technical assistance from Tina Kalake. W-H-Y-Y Audio General Manager is Joan Isabella. And for more of our show, head on over to WHYY.org slash Studio 2. I'm Cherry
0: Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman. And thank you so much for joining us. And remember, you can download the podcast wherever you get your pods. And remember, please, to rate and review.